Hello, and welcome back to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder center in Seattle. I'm your host, Carter Umhel, a therapist, artist, and writer. The Appetite is all about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health. Today, Patrick Devenny joins us again to talk with Kara Bazzi, one of Opal's co-founders and head of our exercise and sport program. If you didn't catch it last time, you might want to go back and listen to our first episode where Patrick shares a bit more about his story struggling with an eating disorder as a pro athlete. Today, though, he'll be bringing in bits of his story and talking about issues of identity in athletics. Welcome back. We have Patrick Devenny again for a second week. We're going to explore the topic that is near and dear to his heart on identity. So Patrick, you've written and spoken about the reality of going through a major identity crisis once you left football. Why don't we start by talking more specifics about that identity crisis? Thank you for another opportunity. Really, really appreciate it. This, as you said, is a very important topic for me because I think all too often, especially in the day of social media, a lot of life is perceived in, I consider, smoke and mirrors. I think everyone's posting all these amazing images of, of themselves and what they're up to, and it's hard to not play the comparison game, which I fell into drastically. Post-football, I was very, very fortunate enough to get a phone call from Coach Pete Carroll up in Seattle with the Seahawks and had an opportunity up there. And I'll be the first to admit that talent gap jumping from college to the NFL, despite the wrist injury that that had happened, it was a long shot to make it on a team. And I knew that still had the opportunity up there. And, and that was absolutely amazing. However, it became very, very evident how much of my identity revolved around football. I mean that from the way that I perceived myself, but also how everyone else saw me, whether that was my family, my mom, and my mom, she had every single pin that you can imagine picture of myself that would be posted on her t-shirt with a jersey at the game. And everybody knew she was my mom. There was no question about it. When I got done playing football, every conversation I found myself in was in the very kind of like, so what are you, uh, what are you going to do now? Not only was, were people asking me that, I was asking myself that. Everybody will go through transitions and roadblocks and hurdles, however you want to look at it, that really, try to, that really define who you are as a person. Each time those things come up, it can be very challenging. And the, the whole identity crisis happens to everybody. So for me, I, I went from living my dream, running out in front of 100,000 people, Saturdays, for even if I was just wearing the University of Colorado backpack, people would want to talk to me. Now, all of a sudden, I woke up with a cast on my hand, just had surgery, no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up, mm-hmm. and was was actually working at a restaurant, getting yelled at when I would spill water as a host, welcoming people to the restaurant. And it was a real, it was a huge shift in my life. Things changed dramatically. It was really hard to not develop a depression and anxiety and this pressure to compare myself to my best friends. I still had my three best friends playing in the NFL. They made a lot of money and wealth and fame and brought its own stressors. But it was a, uh, a huge identity crisis for me. Kind of after that, that <laughs> tested my identity and continue to test my identity. But it's a, uh, a huge a huge piece, I think, in everybody's life. Yeah, one thing that I speak quite a bit about is, especially with elite athletics, so much of your time is devoted to the sport. 
and there's not a lot of extra time to like explore interests or kind of think parts of yourself outside of sport. And so if you're in a sport culture also that doesn't try to help you better understand yourself as a whole person, not just your athlete self, uh, it can feel just like the rugs pulled out from underneath you when you're done with your sport. And I'm curious if you could speak more about that from the perspective of of your story or from from football about that the gap between serving the whole athlete one of the when i talk to current athletes and i really try to put the point across and learning from my mistakes was i was fortunate enough to be in the business school and just kind of assume that the transition would be easy keep in mind my junior i believe it was my junior year of college we had two XCU football alumni on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. I had great grades, great reputation. Alum- I knew a ton of alumni. I just thought, and seeing these guys on Forbes list, I truly believed like, oh, don't worry about it. I'll figure it out. and I'll make Forbes 30 under 30. And that was my image post-football. On top of all the other <laughs> kind of yeah. goals and aspirations I had on the football field. But to your point, Sure, I was in finance class, but I never once sat down and thought, do I want to do this the rest of my life? It was always, yeah, this is great. I'm here to get the A, but at the end of the day, I need you to hurry up because I got practice at three. It was never a big picture. And I think schools are doing a better job now. I know especially CU is doing a a much better job of trying to prepare athletes for post-career, whether that's setting them up with internships and opportunities to go talk to alumni and talk to influential people in the community. The difficulty in what I see when I do go back there and talk to the athletes is that everyone's like, you know, that sucks. You went through it, but unfortunately it's not me. Athletes find themselves in very much a reactive instead of proactive mode. Cause you're yeah. so caught up in, and people can say it's unfair that, you know, the benefits athletes get, but when you step on campus, it's a 30 to four hour work week athletics right. from films to meetings to workouts to all the above that sure I think a lot of people see athletes as like oh do they show up on Saturday and perform and play in front of 100,000 people but at the same time I had people up especially my freshman year and then once I kind of proved myself athletically or uh, academically it was different you have people checking your class we'd have we called spies in the classroom that were undercover that were reporting to the coaches who's in class who's not who's late to meetings all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it was, it was That's pretty crazy. intense. Yeah, you show up to practice like, so you weren't in class. You're like, wait, how did <laughs> oh you God. know that? It's the guy in the sweatshirt in the back was, no way. you know, telling on you. Yes. No matter how hard you push that subject, it's very hard to not get caught up in. You are here to play athletics. Your goal since you were a kid was to make it to the NFL. In my opinion, in a very bad manner, identify yourself that way and not truly who is Patrick Devenny. It's, I'm Patrick Devaney, number 33, the football player that will someday figure his life out. It's so achievement driven. I think that's the um, what I'm hearing and what I remember in college athletics as well is you're I liked what you said about reactive versus proactive is that you're 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 doing what's in front of you. And there's so much investment in the achieving and the doing part of college, both school and sport, that it doesn't create a lot of space to consider even things that that you like like I remember I remember when uh, I was done with college athletics it was like I don't even know I don't even know what I like I don't know what things I 
what my preferences are, what I'm interested in, because it was, I wasn't operating on that, on that level at all in college. No question. And I think that's the tough part, right? Especially at that level. I mean, you have some sort of drive. I think naturally and mentally, most athletes have a drive of trying to prove somebody wrong or prove their community they can make it or There's some sort of external factor here that can have some sort of negative connotation when you have that is what makes you wake up at 5 a.m. to go work out and do these crazy hours and balance school, life, Mm -hmm. social life, all the above that you develop a passion around it. And when you transition to the real world, being an ex-athlete, you have that passion. You know what it takes to have that motivation and all these traits that come with being at that level of athletics. Then when you get put into the workplace and if you haven't really identified what you actually like and your comparison, your baseline is something that drove you for so many years, sitting for me, and for some people it may be great, but for me, sitting behind a desk from nine to five, (laughs) I was going insane (laughs) and I had zero motivation to get up (laughs) in the morning and be like, I really want to make these cold calls today about something that I don't care about. That's really the tough part. And and unless you really start to try to define yourself outside of the sport, it's a tough transition. Well, and I think that is where quite a few people will go down the path of an eating disorder because it's almost like another way to put that drive, another way to be number one, another way to be successful that you have some control over in terms of being able to do it on your own. No question. That was literally what drove my eating disorder was from that standpoint of I couldn't control anything else in my life, that the only thing I could control is what I was eating, when I was eating, and even binging was a letting go of control with the most amount of control possible. Just such a vicious mm-hmm. cycle that, yeah, you very much, an eating disorder from an OCD perspective, it's goal-oriented. Mm-hmm. And that's all I know. I don't live in the gray area. Like I said, <laughs> that, that black and white thinking it just sets you up. It's a okay. natural transition to eating disorders, which is very, very common. So if more people are talking about it, more people can address it earlier. It's less of the elephant in the room. But I think it's just across the board that there's so much ego and image driven mm-hmm. in elite athletics that it's hard to kind of break ground there. Is there like in light of that, is there advice you'd give athletes, male athletes, college athletes uh, of something. I know we, we, we would benefit a lot from system change within athletic departments as we're awaiting change in that, in that regard. Is there things that you feel like athletes could do to kind of be more proactive versus reactive? Fundamentally, I think the NCAA is starting to make strides in regards to mental health and eating disorders and depression, anxiety, all the above. I will say, and what's kind of one of my big passion projects as well is there's a difference in my mind of what's practical versus theoretical ideas. And I say that from the standpoint of like the NCA can come in and start making these programs, check the box as far as you need to have a, a licensed therapist employed by the team and all this kind of stuff. Is it practical? Is it Sure, that's great. You're going to put the therapist next to the locker room. So if an athlete does have an issue, it's a 10-foot walk. And that sounds great on paper. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that's the longest 10-foot walk (laughs) that an athlete will ever make. And it will not happen. And if you want success, that therapist better be located on the opposite side of the 
county, let alone campus. So no, they won't be seen. And there's hurdles there right now. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's kind of the danger zone because I think the NCAA and teams in general, again, kind of what we already referred to, but they're very reactive. We've had a lot of suicides. We've had a lot of people take their life from depression, from eating disorders. It's, it's very much a we need to address this now as mm-hmm. opposed to like, oh, this is something that'd be beneficial for everybody. It's like, oh, no, we've got a tremendous amount of things going on. How can we react as quick as possible? And to answer your question in regards to the athletes, I think it's more being open-minded and honest with themselves to at least explore the possibility of what an eating disorder is and Mm. could they have it is taking the time to establish a healthy balance in this approach of what it takes to be an elite athlete and go seek help and realize that going to a therapist is so beneficial and trying to identify um, who you really are as a person. There's certain things that I think can be addressed. And again, I, uh, a lot of that being a male, I think my biggest thing is when I, especially when I was playing, it was like the concept of journaling. Like that sounds <laughs> terrible to me. I have zero desire to sit down and journal. It sounds not to be too manly. I'm not to say in a derogatory way or anything, but like, but like something my little cousin, little girl cousin would do when she was sick. <laughs> but at the same time, it's probably super beneficial. And go take a yoga, whatever it is, do what works for you to like identify yourself and, and really try to figure out who you are outside of the sports world yeah. or past the jersey that you're wearing. Yeah. What have you learned about your own identity as you've done this? Some more work on yourself. I'm curious yeah, what you've noticed has changed in your life, in your relationships. Life has definitely taken its toll on me as, as far as what I kind of idolize, where I've put my beliefs and trying to validate myself through the opinion of others. And it's, uh, to me, there's times where it feels so cliche, but really determining my own boundaries and who I am as a person and, and caring less about what other pe- people think, not an easy thing. And it literally has taken... I mean, seven years of pure depression. Again, I think a lot of times people skip over the the journey piece. Everyone in a position where they're in advocacy work talks like, yeah, it was a really rough couple of years, but now everything's great. I will be the first to admit that those seven years post-college were very, very dark. Any sort of documented, like I look back at, I do have some written journal entries from back in the day where I was like, I'm going to give this a shot, gave it a shot. It's dark. People skip over that though, that there's a reality to that. Realizing that where I'm at with relationships now, I mean, my best friend and I joke about it, but he, I'll give him credit on this one. I mean, but he's, he'd rather have four quarters and a hundred pennies. That finally has reached a point to me where it resonates with me that I would rather have four people in my life than a hundred and trying to please all 100 that if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And that's fine. We can go our separate ways, whether that means being comfortable in faith or yourself or however it looks, there's a journey involved. It's allowed me kind of perspective of being able to be vulnerable and Mm. put myself out there because if I can affect one person in a positive manner, I don't really care what the other 99 think. And it happens all the time when I speak. You know, I see a lot of males in, the, in attendance that are rolling their eyes thinking I'm crazy. But then you have the one male that comes up to you afterwards and says, dude, I resonated with this. And that that's where the change is. And that's what really is the motivating factor. I relate to that a lot, too. And I think it, the that change is it's really hard to go from kind of getting your worth from all these things that you do and the the achievement, um, success, 
people liking you. And <laughs> I think it's really hard to switch to the more solid internal worth <laughs> of just yeah, being well, okay as a person versus like you said, your, your football number being okay as, as your own self. Yeah. Really I mean, hard. to that point, I think that was the defining moments for me in my recovery journey was when I realized that my eating disorder wasn't just affecting me. I got to a point for years that as painful and as hard and as many hours as I spent beating myself up and, and what was the cause of the eating disorder, I, in some sick, twisted way, was okay with that because I felt like, who am I? I'm, I'm nobody now, this and that. But that punishment actually was acceptable and kind of expected in my mind because I wasn't a pro football player. I wasn't somebody that people still cared about. And I, I felt like I deserved the punishment. But then I had a point, probably the one that really made me woke me up and truly had me hit rock bottom was I was, my mom had just passed away and I was visiting my best friend and he had at the time, now he has three kids, but two gorgeous kids I loved to death. And the whole time I was sitting there and it was 11 o'clock at night. And I was just saying to myself, like, please let everybody go to bed. Like I'm on the verge of freaking out. I want to go raid the pantries. He had said to me when he went to bed, he's like, dude, if you have an issue, like knock on the door, like, don't, don't go for the food. I'm like, no, man, I'm good. Don't worry about it. Of course, as soon as the door closed, I went sprinting for it. And with the intention of, okay, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to replace all the food, this and that. And in the morning, he beat me to the punch. I hid all the wrappers. I did everything. And he came in and woke me up. And he's, you know, man, it's one thing if you're going to raid the pantries and do that stuff to yourself. But when I don't have food to feed the kids this morning, that's mm. we have a big issue. Mm. And that crushed me. But yeah. at the same time, as, as hard as it was for me to accept that fact, that was when change actually started to happen because I was so wrapped up in this punishment because I didn't have self-worth. But when it started to affect, and at this time, you know, I think a five and a seven-year-old, mm. it was the worst feeling of all time. It took that rock bottom and a few other stories similar to that to then realize, like, wait a second, this is bigger than myself, but ultimately I need to identify who I am and really go down this path because if not only that, you start having these suicidal thoughts and just mm -hmm. wondering what life would be like on the other side. But yeah. it, it, sometimes it takes that to um, develop the relationships that I have now, which are very open and honest and total shift from where my relationships were before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm struck by how honest your friend was too, that he didn't tiptoe around you. And he said what the impact was, like going back to the point about being direct to like really, I mean, eating disorders are so self-absorbing. I mean, you, you're, you're kind of in your own world in a lot of ways. And then to have your friend kind of shake you out of that to some degree to, to show reality sounds like a really loving, hard, but loving act. No question. He, yeah, he has that ability. I think that's probably one of my biggest blessings. I've been surrounded by people that can be honest with me. And again, I think that goes back to the point of you find yourself in relationships that are very surfacey and not willing to kind of smack you on the chin and, and let you know where you're at to give you that honest feedback. And, and if you're not willing to accept that, that's something to examine because I was the, on the alternative side of it, I was so isolated in my eating disorder that when you hear about the suicides and these identity crisis that happens, I can see it. Like I understand it because you're so alone and your worst enemy is that 
is that voice in your head that's telling you there's an easy way out, that you deserve this, this punishment, blessed from the standpoint that I've had people in my life to kind of get me back on track and help me (laughs) in a very slow and monotonous path. It took it took years, but again, they stood by me, so I was fortunate, very, very fortunate in that standpoint. What, what's happened with the friends that you were talking about that went on to play NFL and the few friends that you said had that that success? Are you still in relationship yeah, with them? Know, oh, I do. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I still have my absolute best friends, and it's, it's a very interesting time. I've had seven years to kind of go through this journey, and I think less about those friends, but more athletes in general. I think there's that... ESPN 30 for 30 documentary called yeah. Broke, which uh, not to butcher it, but it, that in there is 80% of ex-athletes within three years of retirement or being cut or whatever, either one, if not all the above, clinically depressed, divorced, or bankrupt. Especially in the NFL, the league average is only three years. So imagine you're 24 years old, you've had three years of making, let's say, a league minimum of $400,000 a year, to now all of a sudden you're working an entry-level job. It's a real gut check. It's a tough transition. And a lot of my friends that have have had multiple years in the NFL, they're now transitioning to the real world. And a lot of this identity crisis at a later point in life. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was fortunate and unfortunate to go through it, but I was fortunate from the standpoint that I was started when I was 24 versus a lot of these guys are 30 and above with families and kids and these pressures to maintain the financial status that they had and what's now standard that the guy that's cheering for you on Sunday is now your boss and Mm. he doesn't really care about what you did in the past. It's more, okay, you got to produce for me now. Here's your, here's your computer, get to work. And it's a tough transition. I thought maybe it would be interesting to um, hear your reflections a bit about reading the book, what, what made Maddie run. I know you mentioned that on our phone call uh, last week that, that you've been reading that book. That book has completely changed my life from multiple levels. I think if there wasn't enough motivating factors to get out there and raise awareness around mental health and the pressures of being an athlete and eating disorders, hearing Maddie's story is enough to want to partially make you quit your day job from the standpoint that, again, it's something that if somebody doesn't really understand kind of the pressures of what it is to be a collegiate athlete, Kate, the author, did such an amazing job of painting that picture, but also diving in and and really kind of getting behind the scenes of what Maddie mentally was going through on a day in and day in, day in and day out basis. You know, I've said it to a few people now, but I'll say it here. I look at that story and any time the word Maddie was used, I could easily sub my name in there. I could, the only difference being that I didn't take my life at the end of the day, despite how close I was, and especially post-college career, Mm -hmm. when I really lost that self-identity piece. That was a huge part of my mental bandwidth, was a daily struggle of depression and anxiety and panic attacks and all the above. Yeah, that book really paints the picture of what it's truly like to be an athlete and the pressures involved. I mean, she went from loving her life in high school with a good balance of sports, academics, and social life to now you are on a college campus at the end of the day to play a sport and perform. Mm -hmm. And there's money and there's pressure and there's quotas that teams need to hit. It's a very much what have you done for me lately mentality. 
phenomenal book that I think really does a good job of painting the pictures of the pressures of what I try to speak to, but ultimately the true story of Maddie and her ultimate suicide. Such a good book. Is there anything else that you would want to say on this episode that we're missing? Not much else. I think, again, I think as a summary, I would say if you are an athlete and you are, or even if you're not, if you're just competing with yourself on a day in and day out basis, but you do feel like you struggle from the anxiety of depression, especially in a world of Instagram, these society, society's pressures that to please reach out and get help and, mm. and know you're not alone, that you see it now, you see these athletes, especially at the high level, the Kevin loves of the world, mm-hmm. professional athletes, coming out and talking about it. And unfortunately it's still a society where these guys are putting themselves out there. And I was, I was watching football last night and there was a reference to a player on the team that was the commentators had said he struggled the last couple of years with mental health, but he has publicly said that he will address that when he's done playing that to me crushed me from the standpoint of he's going through stuff. He is addressing it, but he's still at a point where he's not willing to come out and talk about it because he knows teams will judge him for it, that it will affect playing time. And that's the reality of it. But at the end of the day, no matter who you are, what you're doing, if you do feel like there's something inside that you need to address or need to talk about to get it off your chest sooner than later, because that internal voice and what I lived through is a very, very powerful voice that nobody else can compete with. And mm-hmm. the sooner you can open up and express yourself and, and realize it can be nipped in the bud, but if not, you're going to have a full field of weeds and it's hard to get out of and it's okay to ask for help. So that would yes. be my biggest kind of takeaway message is to get past the ego and, and ask for help if you need it. And as we know in the recovery world that early intervention makes a big difference for recovery progress. So (laughs) no question. Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy. Thank you. Thanks again to Patrick for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the appetite on your preferred podcast app and leave us a review if you'd like to. As always, you can find out more about Opal at opalfoodandbody.com where you'll get some resources if you need them. And you can just learn a little bit more about us. Follow along with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Thank you to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music, and to Large Media, our production partner. 